Welcome back to the Effort of Everything podcast. I'm your host, Jason Kleep. On today's episode, we have Rob Wolf on the show. Now, Rob has been in the functional training and nutrition space for many, many years. He's a two-time New York Times bestselling author, deep into jiu-jitsu, deep into training, and I loved talking to him about those subjects. Before we get into the episode, I want to remind you, if you get value from this or our other episodes, leave us a rating leave us a review, screenshot it, let Rob and I know how this episode was and the impact you received from it. In particular, what we discussed today, something I really enjoyed talking about was just the fundamentals of nutrition. His idea of this idea of healthy rebellion, prescription for anti-aging, and the impacts of blood glucose on training. Now let's dive into an incredible episode with Mr. Rob Wolf. Let's go. All right, so Rob, let, let me first start off by asking this question. What has it been like to roll jiu-jitsu with Andy Stumpf? Because I know Andy from back in uh, CrossFit Level 1 days, and he would uh, he would abuse me as like the, the demo person. And I know he's a purple belt now. He's a pretty big guy, you know, and you're a brown belt. You've been doing jiu-jitsu for what, like eight years? Or how long have you been doing Consistently eight years, for? yeah. Con- consistently for eight years, yeah. And how is it like uh, rolling? Because you said you just recently, or at least a little bit ago, moved to Montana. What is it like when you roll with someone who's, you know, I mean, obviously he's skilled as a, you know, in the military side, but, you know, you probably have more technique, I imagine, but just the pure size of him. How's that been for people who know Andy? He's a big guy. Yeah, he's a, so I'm about 165 pounds. Andy's maybe 210, 215 and, and athletic and everything. And, uh, and <laughs> yeah. he's, um, he's a, a lifelong student. So, you know, I mean, he has taught himself to learn how to learn. He goes to class very consistently. His kids are older than mine. So I'm creating a bunch of excuses for why Andy is pretty, pretty fucking good at, at what he does. <laughs> but, um, I never feel unsafe with Andy. Like I'm going to get hurt, but I never feel comfortable because it is a constant battle. Like he's, He's very technical. He's very good. And, uh, uh, I mean, it's, um, uh, I don't spend a lot of time on top, put it, put it that, that <laughs> like, I, I, I spend a lot of time in, in defense and, and getting out of Mount and, and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. So what got you into jujitsu? Because I've been doing jujitsu for about six years. Um, you know, COVID put a little bit of a adjustment with what I was doing. Um, but I've been pretty darn consistent for six years. Mm-hmm. You've been out a little bit longer than me. Um, what got you into it? Because, you know, when I was looking back on some of the things you've done, and I, I obviously I knew of you many, many, many years ago, and you, you know, obviously started one of, if not one of the first, if not the first CrossFit affiliate, then you really started talking about this idea of paleo uh, really before it became more mainstream. Now it's pretty mainstream, this idea. Um, right. And I want to talk about, obviously, the healthy rebellion and things you have going on there. But at what point did jiu-jitsu come into play? Because how did your fitness journey evolve? And then where did jiu-jitsu play in? And then what what role does that play actually today? I'm curious. From a strength conditioning to jiu-jitsu side, where are you at as the evolution has continued? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I just had always been interested in martial arts and not so much like being a tough guy, like I didn't get picked on a ton in school. Uh, I, I was pretty affable and friendly. And so I, you, you know, uh, uh, 
there was none of that, but I was always fascinated by like Bruce Lee and martial arts movies and all that stuff. And I had started off in some traditional martial arts like Kempo, uh, karate and, and got a brown belt in that. And then went to, um, Long Beach, California was kind of sniffing around going to school down there. And I had an opportunity to do some sparring with a kid who was like 25 pounds lighter than me. And he'd only been doing Muay Thai for about six months. And he murdered me. I mean, murdered me. Um, and you were I, sparring in, in, uh, in, in Muay Thai, were you sparring or what were you sparring in? I mean, it was stand up, so you know, it was oh, striking, yeah, you know, punching, yeah. kicking, you know, it was just, and uh, uh, and he murdered me, and I was like, "Holy Christ!" You know, what 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 was that? You know, he's smaller at that time. Like I, when I was competing in powerlifting, I was never as big as you, but I was 181 pounds. I could flat foot dunk a tennis ball, like stand under a a, a tennis you know hoop, and. Uh, at some point, I had a 340, 350 pound power clean and push jerk. Like I, I was pretty strong. I was reasonably athletic. Yeah. And I, this kid murdered me because just boxing, kick, tie boxing, judo, wrestling, you're dealing with a real alive resisting opponent. And in a lot of the martial arts, like they do some what, what Matt Thornton, one of our, our coaches would, would call a live training, but it's a lot of like katas and punching the air and everything. And funny enough, that just doesn't, doesn't really cut it in, in real combative. So that was a huge eye opener for me. And I did end up moving down to uh, Long Beach, California. And this was in the, the early nineties. And then it was right as the first UFC happened, this guy who was a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which I had no idea what that was at the time. He came into the, the Thai boxing school. He's like, hey, I want to show you guys some of this stuff. And I did a little bit of wrestling in grade school and high school. Nothing great, you know, but I, I knew a little bit of stuff. And again, this guy, what was so fascinating about that experience was the harder I tried to do something against this guy, the worse it got for me. Like he literally right. just, it, it, if I went relaxed, it, it made it harder for him to do something, which, you know, right, was right, so right, right, right. weird, you know, but, um, there was virtually no, no jujitsu available at the time. I ended up moving out of LA and I didn't really get a chance to, to do jujitsu until, gosh, it was 2012. Like my first daughter had just been born and I finally, landed in a spot in Reno where there were some schools where there was like a middle of the day class and, and all this stuff. So like my first exposure to jujitsu was in 1993, but I didn't wow. really get to train it again until like 2012, a good friend of mine, John Frankel, who's a, a black belt. I got to do a little bit of training with him in, in 2004, but you know, everything that I do now, like the strength and conditioning, the mobility, it's kind of oriented towards facilitating me being in jujitsu as long as I can. I don't really compete. I've done a little competition. It's cool, but it, it it's just, um, uh, I love spear fishing and snowboarding too. And I have no desire to compete in those. So it's a little bit similar right. with, with jujitsu. I just like doing it. It's, it's my community. It's great physical outlet. Um, it's an infinite pool of stuff to learn. Like you never run out of something to improve, something to, to get better at. And so it, it really is kind of my, my orienting feature in my life. Like the whole family does it. Both my girls do it. My wife does oh, it. Man. She's, I'm jealous. You know, so it's, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm jealous. You know, I, I see a lot of similarities. So when I first got into jiu-jitsu, I was first introduced years and years ago. I used to sublease some space at one of our gyms at jiu-jitsu school. 
But at the time I was competing professionally in CrossFit. So I didn't want to, I, I was very intrigued about the chess game and about the dynamicness mm -hmm. of it, but I, I didn't want to get into it because of those pieces, meaning the, the dynamicness when I'm trying to compete professionally in this, another sport, just wasn't the right move. So I waited until, um, after I basically retired from competing professionally, I, I, I got really back into it and I fell in love with this idea of, of constantly learning new things. And I think maybe you've seen the same thing. So in CrossFit back in the day, let's just talk like back, back in the day, 2006, 2005, when, when, when we were first starting out, there was a lot of inspiration to learn how to muscle up, learn how to rope yep. climb, learn how to snatch. But over the next 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it is, you start becoming relatively proficient and you no longer feel that same, like I'm learning mentality. Uh, right. It's more of like, Hey, you're doing this as a strength conditioning program, which is phenomenal. But maybe for those people who are attracted to this idea of like learning new skills, it's not as common. And I found that jujitsu really catered to that outlet for me where I'm constantly learning something new every day I go in. And I feel like whether I'm learning something new, new or a variation of what I already know, it's, it, it triggers the, the brain in a different way. I, I, have you kind of experienced the same thing where back translating, like when you were looking at powerlifting, once you learn how to deadlift, maybe you make, I don't know, 2% gains, but in jujitsu, if you could learn how to get out of a side control or whatever it may be, you could actually see exponential gains overnight. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's interesting in that you, you, one always benefits from being strong and fast and explosive and having cardio in jujitsu. But the way you get really good is using all of that stuff as little as you possibly can. You know, like if, <laughs> Isn't if that you're going to do, thing? yeah, yeah. And so, so what's interesting about that is if you're athletic and big and strong, that's great. You know, like, it, it, you know, it can be an advantage. But if you're not, you know, if you can be patient and learn weight distribution and angle changes and really get geeked out about technique, there's kind of this almost infinite progress that you could make. One, one of my coaches, John Frankel, he got his black belt in 2004 and he, he's about my height, but he's an athletic guy. Like he can do backflips and, you know, different things like athletic guy and everything, but he's, so he's 53 now. He said that his 53 year old self could absolutely murder his 34 year old self when he first got his, his black belt. And it's not because he's stronger. It's not because he's more explosive. It's because he's more efficient at jujitsu. And he's like, I don't know how long that's going to run. You know, at some point, the loss of physical capacity will start outstripping that. But he does a basic strength and conditioning thing and he eats well. And so, you know, so far, he, he just continues to get better and better each year. And I think that that is something that's really fascinating. And particularly, you know, it's like when you know that you've done the heaviest back squat you're ever going to do. You're like, right. my only PR now is relative to my age currently, or, you know, like my local PR, like I'm never going to power clean more than I did in the past. You know, that starts getting a little bit frustrating, you know, where you're only chasing mitigating, you know, the loss of returns. Yeah. But if all, if all that stuff shifts to, well, I just want to stay in the game and be in as, as strong and flexible and mobile and everything as I can be for this thing, it's kind of a different story. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love that. You know, for us at our gyms, uh, whether it's online or in our gyms, you know, we really embody this idea of allowing our members to live freely and fully outside the gym. That's our goal. And when I think about like living freely and fully, I want to be able to go do things like jujitsu or go keep up with my kids, or I never want fitness to inhibit the things I want or need to do. And I think, I think there needs to be more of a conversation between strength conditioning and jujitsu and jujitsu and strength conditioning. I think that 
not enough people in strength conditioning have exposed themselves to jiu-jitsu because it is a big barrier to entry, of course. And I think vice versa. I think people in jiu-jitsu are, you know, highly technical, highly skilled. But I think if they can incorporate a little bit of strength conditioning on the side, they might see a beautiful blend there that maybe we need to continue to talk about. So I'd love to continue these conversations. I think that, you know, I have a big passion for jiu-jitsu. Obviously you do as well. Um, but I want to kind of switch gears on the conversation because I'm, I'm very interested in your thought here. So I've been wearing a continuous glucose monitor mm. for uh, about a month. And I've currently been eating um, primarily just meat with some fruit, more of like this primal concept for about 25 days. And the reason why I was doing that is just to kind of try something new, test myself, have some discipline, but also to see how my inflammatory, like how my knees felt, my aches feels, and then how my gut health felt. And I feel good, but I want to ask you a question, particularly with the CGM. Have you ever worn a CGM and done a uh, jujitsu versus doing like a traditional strength conditioning style workout? Yeah. Yeah, I did. It was, it was a little weird. I had it on the back of my tricep. And so I, I did some rock tape around it and everything and it, it, it worked <laughs> yeah. pretty, pretty well. Um, and, uh, you know, my strength and conditioning is very mellow these days, particularly within the context of jujitsu, because, um, I'm, I, I, I virtually never leave like the strength and conditioning session feeling knackered at all because I want to save that for jujitsu. And even at jujitsu, I'm trying to be efficient and not go crazy and all that stuff. But I just found that, um, I just turned 50, like a couple of, yep. like a week and a half ago. If hey, I dig birthday. a hole, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. If I dig a hole on the strength and conditioning side, I'm done, you know, like I, so, so I'm pretty modest on that stuff, but um, you know, at jujitsu, I, I saw some transient blood glucose increase while, while rolling, which is yeah. kind of what you would expect with kind of a high intensity exercise. And then it went back down to baseline pretty quickly. Um, I don't really see that with my, my lifting and low intensity cardio, because I think it's so much lower pace and, and all that. Yeah. So, th th so that's, that, that's kind of leading to my question is that when I was comparing my CGM with jujitsu versus like, let's just say I go in and do like a hard AMRAP, a hard EMOM, a four time. And I go pretty hard, you know, not as hard as when someone's trying to choke you out, but I'm going hard. And then I've also done long, slow distance training. I've done strength training. My, my blood sugar spikes, my, you know, are, are not even close, like not even within the realm. So let's just say if I'm doing like a, one of our workouts at NC fit, maybe I'm hitting at the most, like some high one eighties, two hundreds. Now, granted there is a deviation with the with mm -hmm. instead of blood pricking instead of for CGM. But as a relation, I've seen 280, 290, even 300 on a consistent basis, 280s, 250s from jujitsu. And I think it's because I'm connecting my brain with my body as well in that fight or flight mode. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Do you, have you have you ever seen, have you ever tried that before or thought through that? Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, and maybe counterintuitively, what I've noticed is doing maybe like 15 or 20 grams of carbs exogenously right before the training yes. actually drops the total magnitude down funny enough. And so, yes. uh, so much of our, our appetite and, and so much of our metabolism is, is governed by the brain and within the brain, there's this, this concept of the central governor where, when we, when we sense satiety, like we've eaten enough food, it happens in the brain. They've, uh, exercised folks where they'll, they'll run them to, to failure on a treadmill 
and you know people will go a certain distance and if if they just give people a sweet tasting solution like it doesn't have sugar in it but they just let them rinse their mouth and spit it out they'll run five to seven percent further before they hit failure because the brain thinks oh i've got a little nutrition here so i i think that sometimes the magnitude of stress that occurs under these hard training scenarios, whether it's kind of a CrossFit deal or more of a, a jujitsu or like a wrestling session or something like that, particularly if people are kind of generally eating a little lower carb, then we can get a really potent blood glucose response coming out of the liver. And I, I'm not entirely sure if that's good or bad. I do think that it, it stacks up as an additional stress because it's usually adrenaline and cortisol that, that uh, right. facilitates all that. And I think, again, I, I'm guessing there's no randomized control trials on this stuff, but I think that it, you, this is where a little bit of carbs, like 10, 15 grams of dextrose in a you know shaker bottle and you consume it pre-workout. Um, interestingly, the total magnitude of blood glucose after that is less than if we we train generally with with no you know, supplemental glucose. And, and I think that it ends up mitigating some of the stress response, which I think would be good in the, the full life cycle of training. So I think that there is a case to be made for a little bit of like targeted carbohydrate around hard training like that. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think you're spot on. It's been something that I've been playing with is, you know, let's just say 15, 20 minutes before a hard workout, eating like a spoonful of honey as an example. Mm -hmm. And, and, providing my body this this uh glucose this sugar, to to be readily more readily available um it's just yep. been something i've been i've been playing with because i was shocked by by how aggressive it spikes up and then obviously it goes back down which is great um and i have my blood work taken which i'm waiting for the results on but i guess i guess you're validating what i was thinking which is maybe if you already preload that source you might not see as an extreme of a of an incline and you might actually feel better through your training session so you, you know, that kind of leads me to what a bulk of your work has been on, or, or at least I shouldn't say bulk of your work, but you, you're really, uh, when you think about like this paleo style, like how have you evolved with your kind of like mindset on nutrition? Because I think there's people who, you know, it's vegan a hundred percent or it's this a hundred percent, but then as they grow older and they evolve and they learn more and they test out on themselves, maybe they change their tune a little bit. Right. Right. How have you switched it up since, you know, writing books on this and, and developing this in, you know, mid, you know, you know, 2000, what, eight, nine, 10, how has that evolved to where you're at today? Like your thoughts on nutrition as a whole and what people should be doing, uh, for longevity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, really good, good question. Um, I guess it, it, some of the problem that I always face is we have these simple heuristics, like these simple rules that I think are valuable for getting, you know, if somebody just wanders into your gym and they've never, they're kind of a metabolic mess and they don't know how to, to, to eat anything approximating a good diet, it'd be really easy to get them into deep water and overwhelm them with information and it's not going to help them. So you need these simple rules like focus on some protein, then some minimally processed carbs and, you know, eat a rainbow and all that type of stuff. Super helpful. But then people have a tendency to turn that stuff into religious doctrine. And, and then, you know, it, it, it's, uh, you can't modify it for the, you know, the specific situations that pop up for folks. So, you know, the, I guess the way that I've been looking at all this and it always, 
I try to start things with, you know, who is the person I'm talking to and what is their goal? So then I figure out where are they, where do they want to go? And then we can kind of, we can build a roadmap there, there, you know, otherwise it's like all this stuff uh, absent the uh, context of a goal is, is tough to put any, you know, kind of meaning to it. But beyond that, like the, the basics of nutrition, I'm really kind of protein centric. Like I, 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 Protein is disproportionately satiating for folks. And the the real key for people to get healthier, to improve body composition, particularly, you know, just kind of the unwashed masses, all these people that that we all kind of need to help to to avert like a giant healthcare crisis, um, you know, losing a little bit of weight, getting metabolically healthy. Protein's really valuable. People, if people eat enough protein, they tend to not overeat everything else. If they under eat protein, they tend to overeat everything else. So like mm. a gram of protein per pound per, of per lean pound, body yeah. mass up to a gram of protein per pound of body weight is a great bracket. And then from there, I like to tinker with people to see, do you run better on carbs? Do you run better on fat? Or do you run better on a little bit of a combo? And usually asking them some questions like, hey, if, if you go without eating for six hours, do you feel okay? And they're like, yeah, I feel great. And it's like, okay, you're probably pretty pretty, you know, insulin sensitive. You could probably have carbs or fat, but if the person says, no, man, I start melting down and freaking out. Then it's like, okay, we maybe need to do some work on improving insulin sensitivity. Maybe we're going to run you a little lower carbs so that you have more even blood sugar and, and all that. But we figure out the protein. We figure out if you run a little bit better on fat or carbs. And then so much of that paleo diet thing really gets boiled down to this, this idea of immunogenic foods, like foods that may cause a problem with the gut or autoimmune response or kind of cognitive issues, gluten, dairy, soy, corn. Not everybody has these things though, but it's just something that as a practitioner, you can have it in the the, the back of your mind where somebody is, is they're losing weight, they're feeling better, but like, you, you know, it's nice to, to have some sort of a, at least a quarterly survey, like what's your digestion like on the Bristol stool chart? Like, what do your poos look like? Do you have gas? Do you have bloating? And if somebody's still like, oh, I'm gassy and bloated all the time. That's really not normal. And there's probably things that we can do that will improve that. But usually that's kind of like the cherry on the, the Sunday, like yeah. the last bit, you know? Um, if somebody with, with serious autoimmune condition, they may want to jump into that earlier, but generally that's not the case. So it's like protein centric, figure out if you run better on fat or carbs. And clearly we need to kind of find a, an amount that works for your, your activity level. And then the final part is that kind of immunogenic food. Like, is there anything weird, like nightshades or, or, uh, FODMAPs or something that give you GI problems yeah. and dial that in. Well, well I want to ask that. So I, I had never really thought about this before until I started like kind of deep diving into this animal based and doing this myself. I've removed nightshades. I've removed, I've removed all vegetables from my diet for the last 25 days. That's weird to say, like, I never thought I would say that. And I've removed all gluten, all dairy, et cetera. What do you think when you talk about these like quote like semi-inflammatory components? I think we talk about a lot of people say they hey they're gluten, you know, uh sensitive or whatnot, mm -hmm. but people don't really think about like these nightshades and vegetables and whatnot. Based on your research and what you've gone through, I'm curious, from dairy to gluten to to these additional factors, which ones are kind of like the most disruptive in your from your experience in general? Yeah. Or is everybody is, different. I mean, is there like no it, rhyme or reason? There, there's a difference, but I mean, if we grabbed uh, out of a population, like a thousand people and we, we were to like stratify them out, you know, um, yeah. 
a lot of people are reactive to eggs like a lot ah. of people and it sucks it sucks it you sucks know, it, it uh yeah um I, I thought that I had blood sugar issues for ages and I was eating pretty low carb. And then I wore a CGM and I felt like shit. Like I usually did after breakfast and I'm like, Oh God damn it. I'm allergic to eggs. <laughs> you know? And so, um, you know, eggs were a big deal, but he, here's kind of a funny thing. So in this, uh, I had for, for ages, I would get acne like along my jawline and on my back from dairy. I went okay. more or less yeah. carnivore. And I cut out the vegetables. And if I'm not eating vegetables, then I have no problem with dairy. And this is just too many vegetables, like too much salad, too much this. And it's so weird. And I know within like the evidence-based, you know, nutrition circles, they would be like, this is witch doctory. There's no randomized control trial. And it's like, I, I get it, but I'll, I'll eat dairy without salads and vegetables, no acne, no joint inflammation. I'm fine. I'll start mixing in more vegetables, you know, like stirry uh, curries and uh, stir fries and stuff like that. And I start getting acne and I get joint inflammation. So dairy for me is transiently inflammatory, depending on whether or not I'm eating vegetables, which is, again, it sounds like witch doctory, you know, that it, yeah. it sounds crazy. Um, and how but I think, think you can remove something to really kind of like, based on your premise that you just shared, right? Um, you know, I've been, switching up for 25 days, how long do you think it takes for your body to kind of acclimate to this adjustment before you make another switch? So let's just take eggs as an example. I know based on um, a survey that I, did, I sent in my blood to see what I'm allergic to and whatnot, it, it clearly said dairy and it, and it said eggs. Now mm -hmm. I've chosen not to give up eggs. I just love eggs. I don't know exactly if that's a good thing, but if you, right. do, if you did remove it, how long do you think it would take for your body to see some type of adjustment before you said, oh, screw it. You know, it says no eggs. I, I ate, I didn't eat eggs for two days, but I don't feel a difference. I'm going back. How long do you think that, that process is? I, I think generally people will feel better within about a week. And it, 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 and this is one of the, the kind of wacky things though, is that, you know, a week, 10 days, 30 days is nice because we really have like cleaned out the system and we're, we're pretty good to go. And that's where like a uh, elimination diet and then reintroduction, you reintroduce one thing at a time and kind of see how you do. But I do notice that a lot of folks have a similar thing. So maybe it's specifically eggs that are a problem for you, or maybe it's some other thing that is causing some gut irritation. And then the eggs are inflammatory because of that. So like people will do these multiple chemical food sensitivity tests and they're reactive to like strawberries and broccoli. I mean, it's like dozens and dozens of things. But when we when we auger in and really look at it, usually it's like gluten or one of these, uh, you know, corn, soy. That's the main irritant to the gut. Then when the gut is irritated, a lot of these immune factors that usually, so like within the gut, we we've got the you know the the layer of the gut and then a layer of mucus that protects the gut from the intestinal contents. If that mucosal layer gets damaged or if some of the factors in it that are part of the immune system get disturbed, then intact food particles can interact with the gut wall and it can cause an inflammatory response. Uh... So if there's something else that's causing a problem in that immune response or in the uh, mucosal mem uh, uh, layer that protects the gut, then we're reacting to the strawberries or the broccoli or the, you know, whatever, or maybe the eggs, but that's not problem 
we need to fix this other problem. And sometimes it is like, sometimes you just legitimately like eggs are kind of a, an evolutionarily novel food. They're, they're protein. Um, I mean, they use uh, uh, different egg albumins in vaccines because it, it causes an immune response. It's used as an adjuvant to provoke an immune response under some circumstances. So it is kind of an immunologically irritating protein under a lot of circumstances, but this is again where, um, you know, like you asked, uh, what's like a 30,000 foot level on nutrition. And we talked about like protein carbs, carbs versus no carbs, immunogenic foods. But then when we really start getting into like the functional medicine side, like if people have legit health issues or you are just trying to go deep, like it, it gets complex in a hurry. Yeah. And, and, and everybody I imagine is going to, you know, I think you're looking at from a, now speaking of this 30,000, uh, foot view, which I think actually leads me into something else that I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about. Uh, talk about this, this healthy rebellion and, and, and the sick care system. You, I was, I was reading some of your articles on this. And I, I found it to be really interesting. Um, I don't know where to start with this, but it sounds like, let's just start with the healthy rebellion. You, you seem to be on a mission to do something a little different. And I think a lot of people are wrapping their heads around this, especially coming out of two years of COVID and looking mm-hmm. at who was most susceptible to severe illness or death through COVID, I think it's been pretty clearly noted that most of these people had additional things going on. Not everybody, right? But most people had something else going on. So I imagine that kind of, did that kind of kickstart your, your theory in this healthy, uh, you know, this, yeah. Tell tell me more about it. Yeah. The the Genesis is, is a little interesting given COVID. So in 2008, like I've had a blog and a podcast for a long time. It was pretty highly ranked. I had written hundreds of articles on different things. You know, like if somebody put in low carb diet, uh, type one diabetes, like there was a pretty good chance that I would rank pretty, pretty high within that, you know, the first page or two of, of Google. Um, I did like a, a reviews of like some vegan documentaries, like what the health and cowspiracy and everything. And those things are very popular and uh, uh, my my reviews were pretty well regarded. And so, you know, if the Cowspiracy website was the first return, maybe my review of the film was the third or fourth return on the front page. So pretty good, pretty good Google ranking and everything. I got up one day and I was just kind of poking around on our analytics dashboard and like our traffic had dropped by almost 100%. Like it was as if our, our website had just disappeared from the, the internet. And this is 2018. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? And then I got like a text from Chris Kresser and an email from Mark Sisson. They're like, hey, is your website really weird? And I'm like, yeah, it's like I disappeared from the internet. A couple of days went by and apparently a number of kind of ancestral health, paleo, low-carb websites had gotten hoovered up in this Google update uh, called the owl update where if google didn't like the material that you had it it basically unranked you it decoupled you from the search returns so i went from having <laughs> a well it, you know yeah it, it is it, it it's very nut puckering because like um, it, you know i made my living based off of my web traffic so imagine whatever your income is and you get up and because of activity of Google, it's decreased by 97%, you know? Yeah. I mean, the like, financial side is obviously oh, like a, a major concern, <laughs> of course, but it's also just this idea of like censoring that type of information, not having it right. come to the forefront, which is another layer in itself, obviously. 
Yeah, yeah. But the, the two were definitely dovetailed together. So I was kind of like, well, shoot, am, am I... <sighs> And backing up even a little bit more, like there's been a long-standing trend for Google to curate health-related information. Like if you put in, are blueberries health healthy, you know, in, into a Google search term, you don't, what you get now is this curated box that Google gives you that is what Google wants you to know about blueberries and health. Used to, it was like the top-ranked websites or articles on this. And you can kind of find that stuff, but all of that stuff is getting very, very curated. And now within this pandemic, it kind of makes more sense. Like Google is very interested in health, wellness, medicine. Um, there was a Forbes article that kind of made the case that you could you could make the argument that based off of investments that Google has done, it should be viewed as a pharmaceutical company because it's tied in with like GlaxoSmithKline and all these other entities. And it, this is all documentable. Like it's not super conspiracy theory, not too, not too far down the thing. But when I realized that Google was blocking my ability to disseminate information and the flip side is blocking everybody else's ability in the world to find anything that I've had to say, like my website was still there. It's just, you can't find it where, where at one point, you know, unless you know to look up Rob Wolf, what the health film review, which if you know that you don't really need to search it, you can, you know, you can just go there. So I started thinking about these alternate platforms and it looked like podcasts were reasonably safe from the, the censorship deal. And then looking at, at something like what we did with the, the healthy rebellion on this platform called mighty networks, which is, it's okay. It's kind of like an old style forum bl blended with a, a 2008 Facebook interface with um, a bunch of weird stuff. Like it works pretty well, but it's it's not super elegant. But we just spun up a, a private membership site there where we do three times a year resets, and we you know we talk about scientific articles, and there's good community, and we have meetups in in real life. But that was kind of my my sidestep around this activity that that Google and you know kind of these uh, tech giants have been doing and we did it about a year before COVID hit and it was uh, motoring along pretty well so we we were established it, it wasn't like setting the world on fire but it, it was it was worthwhile doing it and then when COVID hit we jumped up and then when lockdown started happening we jumped up more and then when the censorship I think the ugliness around social media, like just how hard it is to have like a, 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 you can't walk into a social media thing and like raise your hand, like, Hey, I legitimately have a question. Like I have a 15 year old son. Does it really seem safe for him to get a, a it, it, what is the risk reward story of him getting an MRNA vaccine right. relative? You can't do that. You'll get fucking murdered, you know? Right. And right. so you we, can't, you can no longer really, have a conversation, right? Everybody's yelling at each other. And yeah. I think that that's, that's really unfortunate, but yes, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And, and what was interesting is in this healthy rebellion format, like, I think the fact that people have to pay some money to get in, there's just, mm. it, it cuts out a bunch of the riffraff. Like if you paid money to be there, you're kind of invested in that scene. And we have some kind of, you know, rules of the road for engagement and everything. And in the three years that the thing has existed now, we've only had to remove one person the whole time, you know, and wow. it, which I, I think is incredible. And what we've found is 
we just have a group of people that really are invested in helping each other. We have a bunch of doctors in there, a bunch of healthcare providers, and then just, we have people from all over the world too. Like I want to say it's maybe 50, 50 us. And then like the rest of it, uh, international, you know, like UK, New Zealand, Australia, you know, all, all around the world. So it, it's close to that. It's maybe 40% international, but so we get a really interesting mix of uh, differing views on on things, and there, there's definitely not, to the degree there's an echo chamber, everybody there is kind of into functional fitness. They like CrossFit right. type stuff. They're into kind of paleo diet. Like there's definitely some consistencies. We're not, we're not thick with vegans. We're not thick with like uh, ultra endurance athletes and, and stuff like that. But, um, but people are able to drop in there and ask some really thorny questions and, and have some deep, meaningful exchanges and it is um it's been magic for that community it'll be interesting to see you know hopefully the world does get back to a little bit of a, a more normal state um i don't know that social media is ever going to get any more kind than what it is now it, it seems to be algorithmically optimized for for conflict but it's um this has been a weird thing for me COVID is the best thing to ever happen to all the business activities that I've ever done. Like we had two businesses that we were early stage investors in be acquired because of the growth that they had during COVID. Our personal businesses have done great. Uh, and all of this was in response to Google basically trying to make me disappear from the internet, you know? So it, yeah. it, it, uh, it, it's kind of a weird deal, but despite all that stuff, I'm just horrified by what has happened writ large within the the pandemic and the response and, you know, the kind of unraveling of the social fabric. But for, for us individually and for that community, it's been fantastic. Like it has, it's brought you know, everybody me, together, you know? Well, and tell me like from an interesting perspective, you know, because for those who are, aren't on that platform, what type of conversations have you seen, like you talk about this sick care system and I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on that too. Like what is, what's the future look like to get more people moving and eating better? Because I, I feel like when you talk about type two diabetes and you talk about, you know, different autoimmune disease, different diseases, like, I feel like there is some solutions out there. It's just, it's not easy work and it's not oftentimes, you know, what is the solution? Cause I, I and, and tell me more about your theory on this sick care system versus like, I guess a, a more progressive theory on this. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I sit on the board of directors of a medical clinic that's based in Reno, Nevada. It, it, we do physical stuff there, but we do things all over the place. And in 2010, 2011, we did a pilot study with the Reno police and fire department where we identified the the highest risk people in that population for type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And the reason why we did this is um, cops and firefighters dying and getting sick on on the job is is a huge human cost, you know, because you lose these people. But it's a huge toll for the municipalities that that take care of these folks. Like if somebody has a heart attack in the line of duty and they survive, they're medically retired. And it's between like three and $10 million over the life cycle of that person to medically retire them. It's insanely expensive. And so we, we asked a question, can we find these people early? Can we do something about intervening and, and helping? And so we did some uh, advanced lipidology testing, found these folks that were the highest risk group within this, this pool of people. There was about 40 of them. 
we, we uh, changed their diet and lifestyle. We got them doing kind of, you know, CrossFit type stuff, some mixed modal training, lower carb diet, modified their sleep and exercise as best we could. And based off the changes in their blood work and their health risk assessment numbers, that pilot study is estimated to have saved the city of Reno about $22 million with a 33 to one return on investment. So when that happened, I thought I was going to like change medicine. I was like, in five yeah. years, we're going to yeah. end all this stuff, you know? And this is some of the heartbreak about where the, the split between myself and the greater CrossFit scene really sucks. In 2009, before, before I finally kind of had the, the ultimate split out of CrossFit, I talked to Greg Glassman. I'm like, why don't we set this thing up in a performance track and a health track? And those two things don't have to be antagonistic, but, but they also, there are different end goals on this thing. Right. And Greg ultimately ended up like, doing that. Like it, you're talking about like, like CrossFit health, which is what it turned into. And then, yeah. and the game yeah. is basically what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And Greg ultimately did end up doing that. But the thing that I had envisioned, what I, what I ended up putting together was we need to identify the people who are really sick. And, and also if you're healthy, we need to know that too. And this is where this legitimate advanced blood work testing, and it's not expensive. The stuff is like 150 bucks. It, it's very, very inexpensive to do this stuff. But once we know what a person's age, gender, nationality, and, and their metabolic profile, we can assign a risk profile to this person, kind of like the way that life insurance or other insurance stuff does. It's like you have a you know, 0.005% risk of a cardiac event over the next 10 years. And, and so right. the high risk people, we can really focus some effort on and what people need for change is community. And this is where the goddamn brick and mortar gyms are so important because you go into the gym and you've got a coach and you've got a community and five days between two and five days a week, you've got somebody who cares about you that is trying to help you. I mean, like if you go to a gym consistently, whoever goes to their doctor five days a week, like if you're going to your right. doctor five days a week, like you're dying, you know? And so there's, right, 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 you know, right, right. So yeah, you don't, yeah. You don't want that. The doctor doesn't want no, that. You don't, you don't want, want that. that. Yeah, but the, no. yeah. But I had this picture of, you've got these brick and mortar gyms. They've got an internal medicine doctor attached to them, maybe not physically on present, but, but, you know, it, it, a relationship and a physical medicine doctor or chiropractor, DPT, something like that. So we, address all this stuff. And then the big opportunity that was there is to launch some sort of a legitimate insurance product so that we can ensure these people that are participating in healthy diet and lifestyle practices have community and we can charge a, a fee that is appropriate based off their risk. And as they get healthier, then their, their fee decreases. And I did some work with the Chickasaw Nation for like two years. And I really thought that these folks were going to take this program. They had put all these pieces together, the gym, the functional medicine, the risk screening, but they kind of turned it inward. They're focusing on their, their own folks first. And, and which I think is great, but there's also this opportunity to like direct this thing out to the, to the broader world. But, you know, imagine 10,000 different, you know, clinics in the U S that are attached to a functional fitness facility where we're risk screening people, we're providing this massive incentive to get healthy because your insurance, like when for a family of four, before we shifted to a, a, uh, a Medishare, we were paying 
$2,000 a month. Like right now, if we were still on the, the same thing, it'd be like $2,800 a month for, for just, we still pay out of pocket. That's just, just for like, in case right. I get hit by a bus or something like that. On this MediShare, I pay like $600 a month. Um, so there's a spread of nearly $2,000 a month that could be saved if you create an insurance vehicle that risk stratifies people and helps support them stay in a process of change. So that is my vision of the sick care, you know, altering the sick care system. And I, I for ages, I've had this, this line, which is the gym is primary care medicine. Like when you go to the doc in the box, when you go to the medical clinic, that's secondary and tertiary care medicine. Primary care medicine is going to jujitsu. It's going to a CrossFit gym. It's going to yoga. It's going to Pilates, you know, and hopefully all those places also talk about food and sleep and, you know, and they provide community and all that type of stuff. But somewhere there's never going to be an app that does this stuff. There's never going to be this algorithmically driven thing that does this. We can use technology to facilitate this stuff. But we need community. We need these groups of 100 to, you know, 300 people that congregate in a gym and, and we're invested in each other and we help each other to to go through this stuff. So this is like the background thing that I've been working on since like 2010, 2011, trying to chip away at this stuff. And there's there's just a a monumental amount of inertia and the 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 way the system is put together, both legally and kind of. um morally, it makes it very, very difficult to get something like this going. Like you have to, this is where the, it was a really fascinating thing to be able to work with the Chickasaw nation because they're a sovereign nation. They can do a lot of stuff that, that nobody else can do. And so maybe yeah. someday something pops up in a, a situation like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many factors that I definitely want to learn more and, and, and catch up with you again on, on that particular subject, because it just, there's so many factors, right? Obviously the big one, the elephant in the room is the money, right? You know, mm -hmm. these companies are going to do everything they can to try and they, they, they're in it for the money and the pharmaceutical companies and all those different types of things. And then there's the other layer where, you know, it requires a lot of people to take ownership in their own, in their yeah. own health and wellness. And that's also a very difficult thing to do. And I think we've seen that through COVID, you know, where the, 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 the message, and this is not a, is, Hey, get vaccine, wear a mask. Okay. Like I'm not, that's fine. Got it. But in addition, they should be sharing messages like, hey, get some sunlight, get outside and exercise. If you don't really hear right. those additional messages, you only hear this one message because it's not really very fancy for a, you know, a politician to go out there and say, hey, you know, I have the solution. It's, you know, do this and this, but also you got to go take, get outside, go exercise, do this. It's not as right. nice as, hey, take this and we're going to solve all your problems. So I see why there's that big hurdle. And uh, I appreciate the fact you're trying to attack it. You know, it's my uh, my daughter got sick years ago, and mm -hmm. and uh, the medical bills were just insane. And you just figure like there has to be a better way of doing this entire thing. But that's a whole nother conversation, obviously, for another yeah. day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So looking back on it and, and looking at your training, you know, you just turned fifty. You love jujitsu. You've been doing you know forms of CrossFit or functional training. Um, I, I want to ask, you know, from a, like as the, our audience, like, let's just say they're in their thirties, forties, fifties, is there anything else they should be thinking about? Obviously hydration. I did want to ask you before we close out about mm -hmm. element I had a question about the sodium in there, but 
Is there yeah. anything else that people don't initially come up with and think? So they think, okay, I need to uh, sleep. I need to eat, you know, uh, lowish carb. I need to exercise every single day. But is there anything that people are missing that maybe they should be looking into that you've seen good success with? Like supplements, and I mean, so, anything, just in general, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, thinking like 50 different things here. Um, I don't think there's much in the way of supplements that are really going to help longevity, like focusing on that health span. I, it, there are people both in the low carb space and in kind of the vegan space that are very protein phobic. Like they're afraid of protein because of like mTOR and inflammation and all this. I think that that is so misdirected. Uh, there are some brilliant researchers that are suggesting that like lots and lots of fasting, lots of calorie restriction, lots of protein restriction are the route to um, health and longevity. And I think they've got it totally, totally backwards. Um, what they're comparing is a calorie restricted organism or individual versus an overfed individual. And what they need to compare it to is someone like you, someone who's metabolically healthy, carries a lot of muscle mass and is, is, you know, good and functional. Like our comparison of whether or not calorie restriction is good for health and longevity needs to be with a, a healthy individual, not compared to mm. a sick individual as, as kind of a, a baseline there. And I really think that this protein avoidance stuff is going to be absolutely disastrous going forward. Um, it, I don't think it's going to prevent people getting cancer. Um, it just simply exercising and getting a tan and going to bed on time helps mitigate your cancer. And if you want autophagy, like the turnover of damaged cells, drink some coffee. Coffee stimulates autophagy. Lifting weights stimulates autophagy. Interval training stimulates autophagy. And we know all those things are good for us, you know? So I, I, I guess one of the things is, is um, I would be really careful in buying the hype around like protein avoidance and huge amounts of fasting. If fasting works for you. That's great. But I just see people feel pretty good initially with it. And then they start losing muscle mass and like their performance goes retrograde. And here's the a thing. Once you get past the age of 30, 35, we all are battling age-related sarcopenia, the loss of muscle mass, the loss of power production. And it's not that you need to be like an amateur bodybuilder going into this to do better, but you'd like a double body weight deadlift. You'd like a body weight and a half back squat. You'd like a body weight and some change bench press. All of those things are going to be this massive hedge against mm. age related muscle loss, you know, age related uh, bone loss and all that type of stuff. And I think that those things are, they're so like trite. It's like lift weights, do some interval training have community, learn a new language, pick up a guitar, like do cognitively, you know, new and engaging stuff. It's not very biohacky. It's certainly like hard to spin up some sort of an interesting product around that. You know, it's like, um, there's the, uh, the, uh, Walter Longo has the fasting mimicking diet. And so he'll, he'll sell you a diet that's 500 calories a day of kind of junky food. And it's cool. Like some people do it. Maybe you do it for a little bit of, of time, but you know, when it, it when the, the counterpoint is like, okay, that's fine. But how about just a gram of protein per pound of body weight every day? Um, maybe three quarters of that in carbohydrate, uh, match the fat intake for your, your energy expenditure, lift weights four days a week, do some cardio 
two to four days a week and, and, uh, and, you know, do some jujitsu or kickboxing or yoga or, or learn tactical shooting or, you know, do new stuff, you know, um, that I think is going to deliver the goods from effective aging, you know, like, I think that's really going to, going to deliver it, but I don't know how you turn that into like a, a slick program. You know, that's something no, you, you, you sell. You, you don't. Yeah. And you, you say it just like what you just said. And, right. um, I appreciate that. I mean, that's obvious. I feel a hundred percent the same way. Um, something I've been, you know, using a lot lately is a reverse hyper, which has been a really fun tool to, to get back yeah. on. I, I didn't use it for a while. And, um, I want to ask you though, before we, we, we cut out here, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, my son and I, my son in particular, both of us love the element, different flavors, the different things. Um, and the other day, my son was filling up one of these like bigger water bottles with uh, one of your packets before he went to football practice. And I was like, Hey man, yeah, go ahead and put one of those in. And my mother-in-law goes and looks and he's like thousand grams of sodium. You, you know, you can't be having this. And what I said to her, this is, and I wanted to get your feedback on this is that Caden, my son eats relatively clean compared to most people, mm -hmm. you know, our family eats, you know, pretty clean nutritionally, not perfect, but we try. And so we're not already getting excessive amounts of sodium. And so this isn't, foods. yeah, yeah. this isn't that much of a factor for us. It's more replenishing us and, and for us to go perform. But is that the right way to answer that? Or am I tripping in the sodium that you put in there? Is I, no, I, I, I think that that's a great way to answer it. And this is a, a fascinating thing that happens when folks are eating a highly processed diet they tend to get a lot of sodium and very little magnesium and potassium because it's, it's highly processed foods. When people shift to a more uh, lightly processed diet, whether it's paleo or vegan or Mediterranean or whatever, their sodium intake typically drops and their magnesium and potassium, uh, you know, intake increases, which is good. But what, what's interesting is that if we under eat sodium, we have a hard time making the other pieces really work. And, and particularly if an individual is really active, like when we sweat, we lose virtually no potassium, no magnesium. It's almost hundred percent sodium and a hard training athlete can lose 10 grams of sodium in the course of like a, a game or a, a hard practice, which is like 20 teaspoons of, of table salt. I mean, it's an enormous mm -hmm. amount. American Council of Sports Medicine suggests that for hard training athletes, hot, humid environments, different things, which jujitsu is always hot and humid. Football practice, always hot and humid because you're, you know, even when it's cold out, you're wearing football gear and everything. They put the recommended uh, intake at between seven and 10 grams per day of sodium. And, and so if we don't top off our sodium from the diet, we will pull it out of our bones. And when we pull sodium out of our bones, we're also pulling calcium out of the bones, which is terrible for age and, and growing and all that type of stuff. So I, I think you were, you were spot on with that. With our kids, what we do is we, we will do an element in like a one liter bottle or like a 32 ounce bottle. So it's a little on the dilute side. It's not super, super concentrated. And I, I just, I, I have a, uh, a two liter glass jug that we have in the refrigerator I put two elements in that. Sometimes I'll mix flavors like a watermelon and a raspberry or, you know, whatever. And then I just let the kids self-regulate on that. And they do wonderfully with that. That's, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I, we've been working on hydration with both of our children and, um, 
you know, because the, but I, but I try and balance that with activity level as well and nutrition. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like I'm on the right path there. I, I really appreciate your insight on that. Um, you know, I know that you, you work with them obviously, but I, I I've, I've liked their product. I think it's good. Um, so, you know, wrapping this up, you know, if people want to, you have, you have a wealth of knowledge and I'd love to talk to you again, because I feel like this is just the beginning of a, of a much deeper conversation we have on so many different levels, especially with our brick and mortars. Um, but if someone wanted to go find out more, you know, obviously you have your blog and you have your website and you have different things. Where should someone go to find out more about Rob Wolf? And yeah, let's start there. Robwolf.com is kind of the, <laughs> the branching point for all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Of robwolf.com. Well, Rob, I, I really, really appreciate your time. I, um, you have a lot of wisdom to share and I look forward to actually speaking with you again and doing a, a 2.0, but I want to be respectful for your time and, uh, hope you guys have a great day. Huge honor. Take care.